So this morning is uh, August 19th. It's 2012. Our message today is called Head in the Clouds. We're going to start in a little bit of a random fashion today. There's a newspaper article that I wanted to read you a piece of that has nothing at all to do with the message. I simply want it to be a part of the recording. This, uh, this was printed 22 hours ago. And the title is The Arab Spring Has Run Amok. Here comes the first few lines of it. The Arab Spring takeover of Egypt by the Muslim Brotherhood has run amok, with reports from several different media agencies that radical Muslims have begun crucifying opponents of newly installed President Mohammed Morsa. Middle East media confirms that during a recent rampage, Muslim Brotherhood operatives crucified those opposing Egyptian President Mohammed Morsa naked on trees in front of the presidential palace while abusing others. The article goes on. I'm only reading you excerpts. Ibrahim said, extra brutality is reserved for Christians, but crucifixions are because of basic Islamic doctrine and are required by the Quran. The time and other details about the crucifixions was not readily available. The Center for Security Policy a senior fellow, Claire Lopez, cited chapter and verse from the Quran to explain the crucifixions are not simply normal, uh, are not simply normal for Islam, they're demanding. Crucifixions is a hadad punishment stipulated in the Quran, Surah number 533, and therefore an obligatory part of Sharia, Lopez said. It's been traditional punishment with Islam since the very beginning. The article goes on to say, Lopez includes this warning for Egypt's Christians and compares the coming treatment of Christians in Egypt to Jews in Germany. The cops must get out of Egypt as soon as possible. For the many millions who will not be able to get out, I expect things will continue to deteriorate, just as they did for Germany and Europe's Jews from the 1930s onward, Lopez said. The warnings were there long before the ghettos and roundups and one-way train trips to the concentration camps began in the 1940s. I would just like to say that Christianity is the only religion I'm aware of in the world that tells us to bless those who persecute us, tells us to pray for them. The answer to Islam is radical conversion to Christianity. It is not the sword. It is not politics. Church, we better educate ourselves quickly about Islam. I have now, this year, been on four continents and in 21 countries, and in every country, it is an issue. It's an issue that is in the newspaper in every country I've been to every day. This is the battle of the next hundred years, and it's not a political one. It is something that we all better get wise to, because if we do not share the Lord with them, there is a time coming when in many countries of the world, maybe even this one, they will share the sword with us. This is historic Christianity. The first 300 years of Christianity, the expectation was martyrdom. That was the expectation. You knew when you converted, that's what would happen. It's only been in the last 150 years of Christianity that the expectation has been comfort. And I just want to tell you, it may not always be so. Is that sobering? That has absolutely nothing to do with our message, but I could not pass it up. Let me tell you what did inspire our message. In Hebrew, this is called Shinim Asar Kodesh. It means 12 months. It's the 12-month period of mourning that occurs when a close family member dies. Your behavior is different. You almost can't help it. As I look around the room today, I know that there are people that have been touched by death in the recent times. My father, Gary Kinchin, died 
August 17th, 2011. We held this service in this room on August 24th, 2011. The place where we're going this Saturday, Sharon Phillips, her husband, died. She's a widow not long ago. We lost Bill Shield in the last year as well, as did we Sue Norris. And here recently, Joe Henry, Charlie's father. Death has a way of touching us all. It just does. The heart of Christianity is about victory over death. What happens during this time in the Jewish morning is there's a changing. After about a year, there's a realization that goes on, that conquers emotions, that moves forward with a certain knowledge about the presence of God. I want to talk to you about heads in the cloud today. We're going to turn to the book of Luke. We're going to pick up with the transfiguration. If your heart is heavy, uh, I want to encourage you, it will not stay there. I realize that it's difficult to talk about these things. It was difficult for me to preach my father's funeral. It was difficult for my loved ones to sit here uh, just a couple days after we held his hand and watched him go into the presence of God. I know it's difficult for you to even talk about these things. And yet, this is the subject matter of Christianity. This is where the rubber meets the road. And it's necessary that we look headlong into it and see what our God has for us. At the time that my father died, we could find no recordings of him of any kind. And we could find no recordings because a Bible and a computer had been stolen uh, in near proximity to his death. Felt like an extra special kick in the ribs. You know what I mean? Or maybe not the ribs, if you also know what I mean. Matthew just about a month ago found something on an old crash hard drive. Would you play that for us, Joel? All I want is a heart for Jesus. He's my all. My all in all. All I want is a heart for Jesus. Only He can give me
My father loved to sing. And when you watch that or you hear it, your mind might go to some of your loved ones. And for many of you in here, you love Gary Kinchin the way that I did. This is not a memorial service, Gary, Gary Kinchin. We've been there. We've, we've done that. Many of you, your eyes are filled with tears. And I know exactly what that's like. I've spent some myself. The difficulty in watching something like that and thinking on it, Matthew, is that you love them and you know that they're there, right? Can you say amen to that? They're there. Yeah, yeah. But there doesn't always feel like here, does it? Of course, the point of worship is when there becomes here. The point of worship is that the kingdom of God, it is at hand. It's not in some far off place. It is around us. Jesus told his disciples boldly, some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God. He told them that. Each of the three synoptic gospels then records a transfiguration. There's something in the transfiguration that was meant to bring you and me encouragement. When it hurts that we lost Mr. Henry, or that we lost Miss Norris, or that we lost Mr. Kinchin, when it hurts that we lost them, there's something about Christianity that says, you know what? They're not far from each one of us, just as God and His Word are not far from each one of us. There's a tragic thing that has happened. We have viewed heaven as there and earth is here, and never shall the two meet. But the gospel is about heaven enveloping the earth, and therefore everything that is in the heavens being commingled with what is on earth. This is the gospel. Turn with me to Luke 9. Tell me that you're there. Here comes the 29th verse. As he was praying, his appearance, I'm sorry, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. Before we move any further, I have the benefit of looking at all of the gospels side by side. And when you look at Matthew beside Mark beside Luke, it doesn't just say that his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. When you combine them, it says they were like lightning, the sun, as white as light, dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. What are all of those things trying to communicate? There's no spot, no stain. No wrinkle. You know, your sin has never been big enough to keep God from you. I know that the devil says that it is. A little girl that walked in our church today looked at me and showed me a text that said that she was being harassed by the devil because of her great sin. The good news for her and for every other person is that your sin cannot prevent God from meeting with you. It's an attempt to prevent you from meeting with God. The first thing that happens on the Mount of Transfiguration is those that are in the presence of God are dazzling white, brighter than the sun, brighter than anyone in the world could bleach them. There is no stain upon them. Come on, saints. What does it feel like with the first time you realize there was no stain upon you? Amen. You remember it was like being let out of jail. Amen. It was like being given a pardon from an execution when you first felt lightness again. The kingdom of God is dwelling in that all of the time. A hundred percent of the time. Then two men appeared, appeared with him. 
That's interesting because Moses has been dead 1,500 years. And yet he appears with Jesus. Elijah has been dead 800 years. These are not just stories, friends. They've had eyewitnesses to these events. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor. It was not just Jesus. Those who had fallen asleep in the faith were there in glorious splendor. What do you want for anybody that you love? Could you think of anything better for your children, Brent, than glorious splendor? Than so clean, so white, that no bleach in the world could make them that way? Is this not the goal of our faith? Have you ever wondered why Jesus is sitting here with these men, though? Is this story new to y'all? No, sir. You've heard the transfigurator. Why is Jesus sitting talking with Moses and Elijah? The next verse says that they were discussing his upcoming departure, if you like the King James, his exodus. Jesus was meeting with those who had gone in the past and they had already completed their work, strengthening himself for what lied ahead of him. I may just be the weirdest pastor in the world, but there are times when we're worshiping, I can hear my father singing, Jesus be the center of my life. I feel strengthened knowing that he has reached the goal of his faith and that he knows me and he and Jesus might be talking about you right now. I could picture my pop and all of his expressions in the kingdom of God and those there enjoying them. This is the living faith, friends. It's not a dead faith. I want to tell you this morning, in addition to talking about these things, I hope that we can strip away some of the weak, dead Christianity that has kept us bound, breathing like men who have no hope. Real Christianity is not about buildings. It's not about creed. It is about an empowering relationship with the Lord that enlivens every area of the creation in you and causes you to look at a Muslim that might want to crucify you, causes you to look into the face of death and smile because your king has been victorious. This is real Christianity. And you know who I wouldn't dare say needed to be reminded of it? I would just say was reminded of it. Jesus counseled with his friends on a mountain. He brought those whose race was still left ahead of them, Peter, James, and John, and he met with those who had already finished the race. And something about their discussion seemed to bring him strength because when he leaves it, it says he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. We need to stop thinking of our relatives as gone and allow ourselves to begin thinking of them as here. And not just our relatives, but how many righteous men, righteous women in the faith have lived lives that should inspire us. Have you ever thought, will I be worthy to be in the presence of the Lord? Now you're going to have to answer me this morning. If I can drag you through my grief, right? And out the other side, certainly you can muster up an answer for me this morning. Have you ever thought about that? Yes, yes. His blood makes you worthy to stand in His presence. Everybody understands this from a theological point of view, right? Yes. But what are you going to do when you stand next to Shifra and Pua? They, they risk their lives to save the lives of babies in Egypt. What are you going to do when you stand next to Manoah, Samson's father, who raised him? 
What are you going to do when you stand next to King David? What are you going to do when you stand next to these mighty men of God? Will the deeds of your life compare with theirs? You're going to have a long time to discuss it. A very long time. Will we have to duck our heads and run in a corner? I don't want to. And I don't think we have to. I think that the mystery of the gospel is that they were ordinary people who did extraordinary things. Mm. You know, Jim Elliott is a hero of mine. He was 29 years old when he gave his life in the jungles of Ecuador. And one of the things he was famous for doing is after worship, he stepped to the stage and he would say, I need to apologize to you for being so ordinary and representing a God who is so extraordinary. Of course, he didn't finish his life as ordinary, did he? Whole tribes called upon the name of Jesus because he loved not his life so much to shrink back from death. Pick up with me in verse 30 again. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor. Talking with Jesus, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Jesus... Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. When you look in the parallel versions, it's while Peter is speaking that something happens. While he sees the men starting to walk away, and he doesn't want them to go, Peter offers to build something. And it's at that moment that a cloud envelops them. Come on, saints. The only way that you make it through some days. When you are hurt because you cannot put your head on the chest of somebody that you love. When you see something that reminds you of them. I can't look at a restored car without thinking about Bert Phillips. I don't hear a poem without thinking about Bill Shield. When you're hurt over something like that. That was not the end of the story. The moment those men began to move away from Jesus, a cloud enveloped everyone standing there. There's an association between those who have gone before us and a cloud in the Bible. The cloud shows up as the kingdom of God. It's revealing when we look at Peter, though. Peter has a plan. Men want to build religious structures to contain, to memorialize, or even honor the Lord. And the structure itself becomes the focal point. The Lord, however, wants to build something in you. He chose you as the focal point. You know what's wrong with our cathedrals? It's not that there's anything wrong with the building. I recently heard a house church pastor who put his finger on all of the right problems in the church today. And came to exactly the wrong conclusion. He looked around and saw structures built by men and he rebelled against it and said, we won't meet in any of those structures. Our church will be based on the power and presence of God to which I said, amen. But it doesn't make a building that we meet in wrong. A home's not more holy than this room. The focal point is the human being. God made you in his image and he did it for a purpose. I'm going to walk you through some scripture real quickly and you don't have to turn to these. This is Matthew 12, 6. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Can you say that Jesus is greater than the temple? Yes. yes. They're standing with someone greater than the temple, but Peter's gut reaction is we should build something here. We should build something here and preserve this moment. Maybe then every time we come to that building, we will think about this moment. Mm -hmm. 
Guys, are you beginning to see a parallel? When do we enter into the presence of God? Well, on Sunday morning in worship. When do we enter into the presence of God? Maybe Wednesday. As soon as those loved ones left Jesus, He was enveloped in something. And while enveloped in that presence, He heard the voice of His Father. He died to give you that all of the time. And our loved ones who have gone before us have entered it and will never again depart from it. When I worship, everything gets right with the world. Did you feel that in here today? Some of you that are not part of us, you're not normally here. If you're honest, did you feel a sense of peace during worship that maybe you don't even feel right now? See, when you begin to worship Him, everything gets right. This is where we can hear His voice. It's where we become the display piece for His kingdom. Some people in here, Casey hadn't been in here in a long time, He's moved by the presence of God and spoke something that I think came from the Spirit of God. That's not because He entered this building. It's because that cloud enveloped Him. You know what? That makes us closer to those who are a part of God's presence right now. First Corinthians 3.16 says it this way, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? Early Christianity resisted anything that put the focal point upon a building. And it instead lifted up you as the crowning jewel of God's creation. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says it this way, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, but you were bought with a price. You are real estate that God owns. And He has the right to leave you standing here with me or decide that you should be standing beside Him. If we remove all selfishness from the equation, where would you rather stand? Would you rather stand right here with me after I've eaten garlic all day? Been to a crawfish boil? Would you rather stand with me or would you rather stand with Jesus? There's good news. They're not mutually exclusive. You can enter into God's presence right now and there becomes here. And you are by necessity not only reconnecting with Jesus, you're reconnecting with everybody who loves Him. Everybody who gave their life for His purposes. Ephesians 2 says this, In Him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. The imagery in the Apostles' mind is Zeke and Kathleen are on top of the foundation of the Apostles. They're like stones set on that. But where is the head of the building? Where's the steeple, so to speak? It's in Christ and He's in the heavens. But it is one building, whether on earth or on heaven. One house for His presence. One place for His cloud to rush into. The Bible literally makes no distinction between those who have gone before us and those who still stand here now. He says, Jesus said, I am the God of the living. Because of this, the New Testament refuses to refer to death. Instead, it refers to it in a temporary state of falling asleep. I'm not angry with anybody. It's been a while since I've been angry, although in India I was pushed a couple times. It's disgusting when you see how masses of people are deceived. But I've got to tell you, the, the least oppressive place 
that I've been in the world are some of the Hindu temples. You know why it's the least oppressive? It is so obvious. They're worshiping something that looks like a demon. It couldn't be any more obvious. Maybe the most oppressive thing Abraham Joshua Herschel put his finger on. said, it is customary to blame secular science and anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. It would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Religion, de religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, insipid. When faith is completely replaced by creed, worship by discipline, love by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than with the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. How many sermons, how many church services do we sit through that are just hollow is all get out? Jesus did not take those men on the mountain to show them a religious experience to build a shrine at and then make sure forever the right words were used, make sure forever the right setting was used, make sure forever that it would be done in a particular format. He brought them on the mountain so that they could see, know, feel, experience the Father in a new way. And there is by necessity a connection to those who have gone before us, the first thing that they saw was Jesus glorified. The second thing that they saw were all of the saints who had gone in the past. The great prophet Moses, the great prophet Elijah, standing there with the glory that Jesus had. This was a revelation of what the kingdom is like. There's no breaking between the two. They're connected. Peter did have something right. He wanted to dwell in it forever. And he thought if he built a building, he could dwell in it forever. How many have thought this? If we just build the right theological seminary, we could actually, and you know what? We could have an amusement park out in front if we need to. Whatever it takes to get people into it because that's where the presence is. And if we can draw all the people inside the building where the presence is, we'll kind of build the kingdom, except the kingdom is not like that. All the kingdom is more like a cloud that envelops your life and it affects everything that you do. If you're surrounded by a cloud, those of you who were in Yanni Palam, when we walked through the clouds, it moved through your fingers, through your hair. You breathed it in and breathed it out. You could feel it on every part of your body. This is how we're supposed to know Jesus. And friends, this is how my father knows him right now. He's a part of that presence. He's in that presence now. Do I really wish him back? Now, I wish to join him, but I don't wish that he joins me. Amen. Come on, can you say amen to that? Amen. This Paul had this so deep in him. He thought to die was gain. What a crazy notion that is. To die is to gain. The meaningless message is when the presence of God becomes a doctrine rather than a relationship. Think back on the transfiguration. Why was Jesus talking with these men long since in the past? Do you think maybe He was strengthened and encouraged by those who had completed their ministry? When you hear about men like David Livingstone that crossed Africa for the glory of God, are you encouraged in your ministry? When you hear about men like Jim Elliott, are you encouraged in your ministry? C.T. Studd, are you encouraged 
in your ministry. I am. So was Jesus. He could look at what Moses did and know that the Father was going to complete the work in him. He could look at what Elijah did and know that no Roman was going to stand in the way of God's will in his life. What were they talking about? Doesn't the scripture say they were talking about his departure, his exodus? It seems that even Jesus was considering how he would finish the work the Father gave him to do. And that his resolve was strengthened. When the men left, what came as the comfort? The cloud did. Notice what Jesus does following the transfiguration. Look at 951. Tell me that you're there. I'm not. <laughs> My page is turned. In 951, we start with this word. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Come on now. Some of you know I've taught on it before. To be resolute in Hebrew, there was no word in the time of Jesus. To be resolute, you're, you're going to love this. You ever met somebody, you called them a blockhead? I hope you haven't. I personally, I have done that. I learned it from my dad. Everybody who was driving around him was a blockhead or a numbskull. Now he has no stain, no spot, no blemish on him. But then he was prone to use a word like numbskull. Jesus, in the scripture, to say this in Hebrew, would say Jesus set his face like flint. The hardest rock they could think of. That is what we translate into resolute. Set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. What waited for him in Jerusalem? A crucifixion. Is that pleasant? Anybody here think that that would be pleasant when you heard about it in the beginning of the message in Egypt? Did it make you want to withdraw, recoil some? It did me. Jim Elliot said this, I may no longer depend on pleasant impulses to bring me before the Lord's purpose. I must rather respond to the principles I know to be right, whether I feel them to be enjoyable or not. Aren't you glad he was resolute about doing God's work? As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him who went into the Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. How many people don't like Jesus because of the direction he's headed? By the way, what was the dispute between the Samaritans and the Jews? Do we worship on this mountain or that? Again, they made it about a building. Are you hearing me? What is the dispute between almost every denomination? Do we worship this way or that way? Tongues, no tongues. Fermentation, no fermentation. Under the water or just sprinkled with it? It's just like arguing over a building. When the purpose is the presence of God. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. We could focus on the fact that Jesus rebuked them. And I have focused on that in the past. I've told whole messages on it. But you know, I love the next sentence. And they went to another village. When you are rebuked by the living God, what is your response? Is it to recoil away from His presence? Is it to go hide somewhere? Or is it simply to shut your mouth, put a smile on it, and follow Him to the next village? See, they messed up in one village, but they had one more to go. Amen? Amen. How many times have you messed up in your life? But you got at least one more to go. You're alive today. 
Amen. 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 Listen to this incredible cost. And there's a point, I promise. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, where are they walking to? Jerusalem. And Jesus is resolutely headed that way. He is rushing headlong into something he knows will kill him. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. That's easy to say. He didn't know where he was going. So Jesus gives him this warning. Jesus replied, foxes have holes, birds of the air uh, have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This man wants to follow Jesus, and what does Jesus say to him? You'll be homeless. How many people in our modern evangelism would answer that altar call? Right? Close your eyes, bow your head, raise a pinky if you want to be homeless with yeah. Jesus. I see that hand in the back. I bet you do. You know why Jesus could do this? He just met with those who had already completed their work. He just heard the voice of the Father from heaven. He had just had his life completely enveloped in the cloud. And it gave him a resoluteness, a strength. Am I the only one in here misses my relatives? There's, there's, there's healing and expression. If you miss your relatives, raise your hand. You know the surest way to see those that are in the kingdom? Live a life that makes the kingdom. Amen. Amen. Something of us joins with something of them, united by the presence of God. The head in heaven, the foundations on the earth, all one building of God. All one building. But if we want to make an eternal home with them, we need to resolutely set out for the things that they've already completed. This man was threatened with homelessness. I don't know what happened, but it seems as if Jesus is probably successful in dissuading him. Look at verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You know how heavy it got in here when I played the video of Gary and I mentioned the names of people that died? You feel it, don't you? I felt like something squeezing my chest. It hurts. This man was feeling that. He was feeling that squeeze. He's feeling that hurt. And he said, hey, first let me go bury my father. Now there's a great debate among theologians. Is this the first burial or the second? Because Jews often put somebody in a cave, and after their flesh had decayed, they gathered their bones, put them in an ossuary box, and there was a second ceremony for that a year later. What difference does it make? Those of us that have lost somebody in the last year, does it hurt really less now than then? It doesn't. Just the mention of it actually causes my shoulders to want to cave forward. Caused most of my family and most of my church family to break down into tears right away. Wouldn't you think that the God of all compassion would have answered differently? This is to teach us something. There is nothing in all of creation, good, bad, high, or low, that takes precedence over God's word and will in your life. It's preeminent. It's preeminent above your feelings. It's preeminent above what you think would be best. He is God. And if he looks at you and say, follow me, there are no excuses. Nothing will work. But there's something you get in exchange for that. Have you ever thought how high the cost for following Jesus is? I can't even go bury my father. What is the cost of not following Jesus? Which is higher, really? 
I mean, any insurance agents in here want to work the actuary tables on hell versus uh, earthly discomfort? Because Paul already solved it for us. He said, this light and momentary trouble is not worth comparing. I was asked this last year, how did you preach your father's funeral? Because I felt like Jesus told me to. Was there really another option? And you know what? I'm going to be honest. Not because I was strong. I found his strength working in me. Isn't that the other mystery of the kingdom? I would love to build a building on the Mount of Transfiguration and camp there. I would. If you could, if you could bottle the presence of God, buy it on an infomercial from 1999, it'd be in Steve's garage. If you could, that's where every other thing that has been sold on TV is found. I would love to do that. That is not the way He designed it. You are the container for God's presence. You are. You are the focal point of His kingdom. The reason the Father did not show up and show Himself glorified on the mountain is because God cannot be seen. But in Jesus, we find Him knowable. He glorified a human being. It says this is what the kingdom is like. And everything that Jesus did was to show us the kingdom. He was not showing us the kingdom in a sky or on another planet as one evangelist ridiculously asserted. He is showing us the kingdom in our actions now, here on earth. And our loved ones are a part of that kingdom. It's enveloping the earth. The first message that Jesus ever preached is repent. The kingdom is at hand. Another way to say it is upon you. If our loved ones are in the kingdom and the kingdom is upon you, where are our loved ones? We probably will come back to some of those things. Let's just look at this then. C.T. Studd, who is considering the absolute priority of Jesus' needs. He's considering losing his life for the cause. He's 71 years old and died in the Belgian Congo. C.T. Studd was 71 and still on the missions field. How's that for retirement? He said this and it became famous. Too long have we been waiting for one another to begin. The time of waiting is past. The hour of God has struck. War has been declared. In God's holy name, let us arise and build. The God of heaven will fight for us as we fight for Him. We will not, we will not build on the sand, but on the bedrock of the sayings of Christ. And the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should such men as we fear... Before the ward, I before before the world, eh? Before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby pamby Christian world, we dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for Him. We will live and we will die for Him, and we will do it with His joy unspeakable singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only our God than living and trusting in man. And when we come to this position, the battle is already won. And the end of the glorious campaign is in sight. We will have the real holiness of God, not the sickly stuff and talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. We will have a masculine holiness, one of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. Would you have liked to have spent some time with C.T. Studd? His mama didn't get to name him Studd. It was the family name. 
She should have named him Stud Stud. <laughs> a masculine faith. Ladies, the only thing wrong with that is that it excludes you. And the truth is, there are women in the Bible that their faith so dwarfs the men. Can you imagine what it was like for little Mary to be overshadowed with God's presence? To know what it meant for her and say, may it be unto me as you have said. That might be the bravest thing anybody has ever said in all the world. So let's change it from masculine faith to muscular faith. It's the opposite of namby-pamby for those of you that like thesaurus type words. A muscular faith. Turn with me to Mark 12. There. In Mark 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, uh, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. How many of you were familiar with that before I just read it? How many times do we hear that the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength? Well, that is true. Two Gospels record that. But the third Gospel, Mark, it's actually the second in your order, but the third synoptic Gospel, doesn't record it that way. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Yes, but he starts with, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There is a battle in our hearts, and it is for supremacy. And it works like this. In India, it's very obvious. If you're witnessing to somebody in India, Curtis, they say, oh, amen. That's good. You can even pray for me. I found not one Hindu that refused prayer. Isn't that interesting? They put Jesus on a shelf alongside all their other gods, and they do it obviously. They never make any bones about it. We like Jesus. He's cool. Let's put him right next to this eight-armed freak. Or this elephant-headed thing. Or this one that literally looks like a demon. Jesus is fine. There's a battle in the heart of every human being. And it is not whether or not Jesus is Lord. It's whether or not He is your only Lord. Or does He take a second seat sometimes to the way you feel? Does He take a second seat sometimes to your circumstances? Are there other gods alongside Him in your life? See, on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was a time of recentering. They could look and see those who had finished the race. They could look and see the race that was ahead of them, and they could be enveloped in God's presence so that they could be resolute about what God had said, and His voice confirmed it. This is what is supposed to be happening every time you gather with your brothers. When we gather on earth as a body. We're uniting with those in heaven that are a body. We are one body. It's never divided. The writer of Hebrews says you come into the joyful assembly of thousands upon thousands of angels. Well, who is with the angels, friends? Our loved ones are with the angels as well. This ought to compel us. They start in Mark with the Lord our God is one. It's the Shema in Hebrew. Look at verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. He includes a fourfold kind of love instead of the threefold one we sing about. It's as if he's being as complete 
is humanly possible. All my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength. Apparently it must be possible to think you've given him all your heart, but somebody else have a piece of your soul. All of your soul, but something else be occupying your mind. All of your mind, but something else be dominating your strength. The living God is jealous for all of us. With our loved ones, He has all of them. They've reached that goal. It's inspiring. Leonard Ravenhill, who served God and pastored pastors until his death at 87 years old, he often quoted C.T. Studd. He was fond of it, which is where I first heard of C.T. Studd. And one of the poems that Leonard Ravenhill often used in his messages was this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I will be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Leonard Ravenhill has finished his race. I hope to God to finish as well as he did. He stood up to the church world of his day. He rebuked other leaders that were his contemporaries and cared not at all what they said about him. In fact... He said, I live in a day of itching ears, but the living God has given me no mandate to scratch them. <laughs> what a man of God. My real hope is that like Jesus, we can be strengthened by those who have gone before us. We should like Jesus consider the way in which we are going to finish the race that they have already completed. And we need like Jesus to be enveloped in a cloud, hearing God's voice. Your head in the clouds is usually spoken as a negative thing. As if it's to say you're a space cadet or absent-minded. Head in the clouds might better be defined as those who are occupied with the thoughts of heaven while walking on the earth because His kingdom is found within us. I'm going to walk you through a few scriptures before we get to Hebrews, which is where we're going. I want you to hear in the Hebrew thought what it means when we say the word cloud. You know, if I say 4th of July, tell me some things that come to mind. Fireworks. What else? Barbecue. Independence Day. <laughs> oh, barbecue, right? When you say that, something inside me just kind of gets excited. I don't know. And not for the vinegar barbecue you guys eat on the East Coast. I'm talking about Texas Mesquite Barbecue. Amen. It's the same difference between seafood on the East Coast and seafood in Louisiana, right, Casey? Come on now. There are certain associations with certain things. And when you say cloud, a Hebrew cannot help but think about the scripture that so ministered to his life. Exodus 13, 21 says this, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel day or night. Whether it is dark outside or light outside, what do you do if you're a Hebrew? You follow the cloud that is the presence of God. Agree? Amen. By the time you get to Exodus 19, the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. The Lord appeared to Moses in the cloud. By Exodus 24, 15, it says, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered the mountain. Covered, another way to say, enveloped. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. The cloud is the glory of the Lord. 
For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud to say to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed there 40 days and 40 nights. Do you remember what his face looked like when he came out? It was radiant. It was glowing. What if he had said, Lord, we could build... We could build a cathedral for your cloud here. This was never the plan of God. What the Older Testament was always hinting at is that cloud that the Lord dwells in, it could envelop you permanently. It could actually fill you. Then the Lord came down in a cloud, Exodus 34, 5 says, and stood there with him and proclaimed his name. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And God descended in a cloud. In 1 Kings 8, the 10th verse, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled His temple. Cloud is synonymous with the glory of the Lord. Synonymous with the presence of the Lord. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. There. There. Come on, two of you were there. What are we going to do with the rest of you? Look, I promised to feed you already. We got up at 5 a.m. and began to eat jambalaya. <laughs> Aren't you glad you want it to be edible? What would happen if I did it? You know, my father, when he walked into a house, no, no kidding, when he walked into your house, first thing he did, door opens, flies open, what are we eating? Okay, great. And I'm just going to tell you, I have lived around some women that can't cook. <clears throat> And Pop loved everything they made. In fact, there was a good year period in his life where I think he subsisted completely on microwave pancakes from Sam's. And loved them. And was happy for them. He was appreciative of whatever you gave him. That encourages me. Look at the 11th chapter of Hebrews. First verse. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Do you see a cloud? I don't see a cloud in here. Did you feel something that you cannot see during worship? Amen. Does it have to be only during worship? Does God punch a clock? No. Does He change? Was He different yesterday than today? No. What is different? What's different from us right now than when we were in worship? Something about the attitude of our heart and our focus. Isn't it? I mean, I'm just going to tell you, I, I, I occasionally build things, Charlie, and Every once in a while, I knock a fingernail off, right? That's just something that I, I seem to excel at. In that moment, I don't always feel very closely to the Lord. Good thing my sin doesn't separate Him from me. It just seeks to separate me from Him. I don't know what keeps us out of the presence of the Lord. I suspect it's the things of man. But God is bigger than that. He's bigger than our thoughts. He's bigger than our hearts. In fact, He's the only Lord we're following. And every rival, including your emotions, including your own risk assessment, including everything else, has got to come underneath Him. Or we're not in Him. He doesn't have all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. Do you know who He has all of their heart, mind, and soul strength? Yes, Mr. Henry's. He's got Miss Norris. He's got Mr. Kinchin. He's got Mr. Shield. He's got Mr. Phillips. 
He's got all of their attention. They're not the slightest bit concerned with what time this service will be. They're not even a little bit concerned with what happens if you get fired. Not, not even a little bit. They're not counting the cost anymore. They have finished the race. Sometimes looking at those that have finished the race can encourage us in how resolutely we finish ours. In Hebrews 11, he says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Why are we pointing backwards, friends? Why are we talking about what the ancients were commended for? Because if you could sit and talk with them on a mountain in Israel, it might make you more resolute about the race you have left to run. If you could hear Daniel tell you in his own words, they threw me in a den of hungry lions, but they didn't eat me. If you could hear Jonah say, I got swallowed by a whale and apparently caused indigestion. If you could hear Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, it doesn't matter how hot they make the fire, God is bigger. If you could hear those things, suddenly your day might not seem so bad. You might gather a kind of strength from what the ancients were commended for because they have run the race. They have hit the mark. They have finished their task. But your race is still left ahead of you. It's left ahead of you. I've met people that will mourn the loss of their loved one in a way that their loved one never would have permitted. If you have a loved one that really loved you, I promise you they do not want you to board yourself in your house and not leave it. Right. I promise you. They do not want your life to stop because theirs has reached the ultimate in the universe. They don't want that. If you're as unfortunate as I am in some areas and you have a loved one that missed the kingdom of God, they don't want it either. Because now they know. They know that they know that they know. How do you bring meaning to situations like that? You have somebody in your life that missed the kingdom of God. How do we bring meaning to something like that? Well, we could change God's nature and say He doesn't do that. That's become popular these days. Or we could glorify God's nature by saying, that would be forever a reminder for me to hit the presence of God and to bring as many as I can. And I will honor the life they should have lived by making sure that I tell everybody so that they don't miss the glory of God. I've prayed for people to get baptized in the Holy Ghost on four continents. I don't know how many languages I've preached in now. But I can tell you the power of God is everything. Jim Elliott, I've quoted many times this service, and I'm going to quote him a few more. He said, it makes me boil when I think of the power we profess and the utter impotency of our action. Believers who know one-tenth as much as we are doing 100 more times for God with His blessings and our criticisms. Oh, if I could write it, preach it, say it, paint it, anything at all, if only God's power would become known to us. He said that in the 50s. Do you think we're further or closer from the presence of God? The power of God will give you strength. The power of God is the grace that He pours out in your heart to endure any trial, any circumstance. Laugh in His face and say it's light and momentary. 
Let's pick up in the 32nd verse. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and ministered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength. Did you hear that? You're broken. You're hurt. Maybe it feels like everything is crumbling around you. It's the broken and contrite heart that He won't despise. This is where His power operates perfectly in our weakness. How do you carry on? You carry on because He exists. You carry on because you must. You carry on because they have finished their race and now it's up to us. It'd be best if you viewed your loved ones as handing you a baton. Because their work is done and ours is ahead of us. Whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released. Can you imagine that? They were tortured and knew that they were going to die. The Talmud records that Isaiah was sold in two. He's going to make reference to that in a moment. They refused to be released because the cost of being released was to accept something other than the Lord. Something alongside Him. Y'all know Philip? Follower of Jesus? An apostle? Almost nothing said about him in Scripture. At a place called Heropolis, there was a gate, a big arch. In Domitian, the satanic antichrist-like leader who was reigning at the time, put an inscription that said, All who pass under this gate are my subjects. Domitian considered himself the king of kings and lord of lords and said so. Philip refused to walk under that gate. Instead, every time he came to it, he walked around it. So they crucified him and his wife and his children right next to the gates in Heropolis. And it said that they sang praises and thanked the Lord while they were being crucified. All they had to do was walk under the gate. What compromises have we been willing to make? That would be a Lord beside our Lord. Say, no, no, I didn't really mean it. I don't think I was looking to see if we've crossed our fingers behind our backs. Is He everything to us? Because He's everything to our loved ones. If they made the presence of God, He is everything to them. There are many admirable qualities in the world. One of the things that I am coming to miss, I've done quite a few funerals for the World War II generation. I've been a pastor now a long time. And there was a season when the World War II generation was dying quickly. We don't see that season very much anymore because they're almost all gone. But when you hear stories of somebody right before their death getting up and making three pots of coffee because they're going to stand their watch. They said the house was surrounded. They couldn't let their troops down. That's not pitiable, friends. That's admirable. Where is that heart in the church today? Was C.T. Studd right 
Is there any muscular faith left? Is there any battle cry in the church that says, I will join with the assemblies of the righteous and I will not have to hang my head on that day because I too will have accomplished something for Jesus. I do not want to live an ordinary life and I don't care at all if I die in an unordinary way. I read it to you before, but I'm going to read it to you again. John G. Patton was going to a place where the only missionaries who had ever been, the New Hebride Islands, or today on your map that says Vanatu, the only missionaries that had ever been there were killed and eaten within minutes of being there. And when he was leaving his successful church, that's a hard thing for people to do, huh? Leave a successful church. Wasn't hard for Jesus. He was a mini-church pastor. <laughs> he was. Every time he got thousands, what did he do with them? Run them off. Can you imagine? Oh, Jesus, please, not the sermon on eat my blood or eat my flesh and drink my blood again. We're never going to build Disneyland over Jesus with that kind of talk. He was being threatened. You're going to be eaten by cannibals. He said, if I die here in Glasgow, I shall be eaten by worms. If I can but live and die serving the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by worms or cannibals. But for the great day of my resurrection, my body will rise just as fair as yours. I've trusted in my Redeemer. You know, the man's name's written next to it that threatened him with the cannibals. But I think it'd be a shame for him to be remembered that way, huh? Do we want to be the voice that says, no, no, use wisdom. Friends, let's have a balanced approach to our faith. Don't go all fanatical. Do we want to be that voice? Where would we fit in an eternity with men like Gideon? How fanatical was he? 300 against a nation. Where would we fit in history with men like Moses who marched out into a desert not even knowing where they would go without food or water? Where would we fit in the kingdom with men such as these? With all of my heart, I want to fit into the kingdom with these men. Verse 37. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. Maybe my favorite verse in Hebrews. The world was not worthy of them. There are a lot of injustices, friends. Maybe a doctor made a mistake. Maybe a loved one didn't reconcile. Maybe siblings fought over inheritances. A lot of disgraceful things happen during difficult times. Maybe we could just smile and say the world was not worthy of a man who loved the Lord like Bert Phillips. The world was not worthy of somebody that loved the Lord like Sue Holmes. Maybe then we could ask a question, how good, how well, how do we fit in with this world? Because to be included in the company of the righteous, we have to live by a doctrine that says friendship with the world is enmity towards God. He has got to be our everything. Not your relatives, not your home, not your priorities, nothing can come before Him. He is preeminent. 
In Hebrews 12, 1, we found the text that I was preaching today. The end of the message. At the end of the race. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, what is the cloud? Well, it's his presence. It's his glory. But in the context of Hebrews, what is the cloud? The cloud are all of those who he's just talked about who are in the presence of God. He speaks about them surrounding us. He speaks about them near us. The same word for cloud here is used in the Older Testament and the Greek version of it to describe what descended on Mount Sinai. And most commentators, including Lou and Nita, said cloud could not simply be speaking about a metaphoric cloud. It has to have a heavenly connotation. There were just too many other words that could have been used. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. They have finished the race. And in many cases, very well. How will you finish the race? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer of Hebrews is pointing us back to the same kind of things that the Mount of Transfiguration talked about. You want to renew yourself in the kingdom of God? You want to be strengthened? Jesus met with those who went before him and completed the task. He then began to think about what lied ahead of him and he became resolute in completing that task. When all else was at its end, he was enveloped with the power of God from heaven and the assembly of the righteous and the voice of his Father told him what to do. See, on that Mount of Transfiguration, it looked like Moses and Elijah left. But at the moment they seemed to be leaving, a cloud appeared. That's how I choose to think about my Father because that's how the Scripture presents it. When his body seemed to have left, the cloud appeared. He's a part of it. The Lord's Spirit will meet you in your hour of need. I want to point you to one more thing without reading it to you in the Word. What do you think the lowest moment in every disciple's life was? The lowest moment when Jesus died. He's crucified. How low were they? Somewhere up in the clouds on the day of Pentecost, I heard rumblings. There was something like violent, rushing wind that was said to have filled the room. How could you see wind fill the room? I bet it was a cloud. In the spirit of their friend, he's more than a Messiah to them. He's their friend. They ate with him. They walked with him. They saw him in a way that most of the world never gets to. The spirit of their friend was with them again, inside of them, empowering them, giving them the strength to finish their race. 
when my spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, he said. Those that have gone before us should inspire us to finish well. His presence will empower us. I asked my wife to do something very difficult. She had a vision and it put her in the presence of God in a way that I only know a handful of people have ever seen. And she said while she was there for days, she told me this, Eric, that is the reality. This is like a dream. That is the reality. I knew that you and the kids and everybody else were somewhere else. But still, I didn't want to leave. That is the reality. She couldn't sleep. She couldn't do anything else. I asked her if she would sing a song that moved her during that time period. It's the scripture that we began our service with today. When King David was gathered to his fathers because his purpose in his generation was complete. He was buried. Are you going to find your purpose in this generation? She's going to sing. I'm going to pray at the altar. I invite any of you to join me there. His power will cause you to reach the goal for which he made you. We can't do anything about our loved ones that are in his presence, but we can join them in his presence. Now please stand to your feet while she sings.